Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., are you a morning person, an afternoon person, or a night person? A night person, 100%. So you come alive when? Uh, about 6 o'clock. At night? Yeah. When do you start getting fuzzy in when, the head? 6 to 11 is You're my sharp. creative space. Like wow. if I'm going to kind of I'm done with work and I'm sitting back, then that's kind of my creative space where I'll write and I'll do projects that are kind of outside of my room. That's when I kind of wake up. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I would consider myself a morning person. Uh-huh. Often I'm up around 530. Yep. I'll try to go to the gym sometimes. And then I will go out to the writing shed and I'll get a lot of work done. Before 9 a.m., I can usually get more work done than I can for the rest of the day. Wow. And that's only about two hours worth of work, but it's just unbelievably potent. And then I get a little distracted for the morning. After lunch, from 12.30 or 1, whenever I eat lunch, till probably 3 or 3.30, not super productive. Really? I mean, I'll walk around and have That's funny, because that's actually, I would say that's my second highest. Is the afternoon. Yeah. After lunch is kind of my second highest production level. Then third uh-huh. would be evening in which around six or seven o'clock I eat dinner. And pretty much after dinner, it's maybe 30 minutes to an hour of reading. Or last night we watched The Crown. Uh-huh. We're, we're <laughs> totally into it. It's yes. fantastic. And then eight o'clock, I'm fighting not going to bed. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason I'm not going to bed is because I'm married to a woman who's 12 years younger than me, and I'm morally <laughs> obligated to not do that to her. <laughs> so we're 9 o'clock. We're in bed by 9. And then I'm up early again the next morning. Uh-huh. That, I believe, is going to change. And it's going to change based on the interview that I did with Daniel Pink. Really? Because you've been like gung-ho about this schedule for a long time. Well, I'm going to keep the schedule. I'm going to add one thing that you do Uh that I did not know I could do, and yet it's making complete sense. Go. Creativity in the afternoon, late afternoon, evening. Really? Yes. Daniel would say, your creativity spice, you are brilliant. Daniel would say, I'm brilliant. He would. Well, he would say, you're more in touch with the real mechanisms of time and the way they work with your body. Interesting. Yeah. He would say, you want to do your creative work in the late afternoon, evening, and you want to do sort of your linear work in the morning, responding to emails, uh, That's putting what I together do. proposals. Uh, my You're body is a fine-tuned machine. <laughs> Your brain is definitely. Oh, my brain is. But <laughs> that's what I do. I do all my linear stuff kind of in the morning, get it out of the way, and then I start getting creative in the afternoon, and then I'm my most creative, I would say, in the evening. There's a scientific reason for that. Because I'm brilliant, too. Well, he would also say this. What? He would say, and I don't want to get too much into the interview because yeah. you're going to hear it. He would say there's three different kinds of people, and that is one of the kinds of people. Interesting. He would also say, if you're going to do things like walk the dog uh-huh. or go to a movie, yep. do it in the afternoon. Interesting. There's a lull, a slight lull in the afternoon where your brain is not as active. It needs rest. Huh. Naps are big and those kinds of things. Anyway, this interview is going to help you understand which of the three kinds of people you are. Yeah. And based on that, there's times when you should be doing something and times when you should not. And it's not just a day. Yeah. It's also in the year and in a decade. Isn't that fascinating? It is. His I new book it. is called When, W-H-E-N, not when, like when big. Yep. When, like when are we going to dinner? Mm-hmm. When. When. And he studied time, because we think a lot about how to do something. We think a lot about why to do something. We don't think a lot about when we yeah. should do something. Yeah. And it's fascinating. He's one of my favorite thinkers and writers on the planet. His yeah. book comes out. 
dun dun dun, tomorrow. Today is January 8th. His book comes out January 9th. And again, it's called When. I loved this conversation. I think it changes the shape of my 2018. Oh, I love it. Especially since he affirmed that I am a complete genius in how I live my life. You know, he failed to do it by name. I know. That's really frustrating. He likes to keep me humble, (laughs) as do I. (laughs) All right, here's my conversation with Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Hey, it's the beginning of the year. You've got a new book out called When, and it's that time of year we're all thinking about time, how we use time, how we manage time. My favorite days of the week, you're going to school me on this, my favorite days of the week are Monday, and my favorite time of the year is the beginning because I love starting over or starting new projects. I love planning and starting on a new plan. True entrepreneur to the core. And I have a feeling you got about 40,000 people listening and they're the same way. But I also think, as you often do, you're going to tell us we're dead wrong. We're approaching it the wrong way. And we could be way more productive if we did it differently. Can you just tell us, because I know your book talks about time. It doesn't necessarily get into time management all that much, but it talks about how we use time. How are we mostly wrong in the way we approach managing our time? Well, on your first point, I mean, you're very consistent with a lot of the science. There's some really interesting research on what's called the fresh start effect. Okay. And here's how it works. There are certain dates in the year, certain moments in the year that operate as, and I'll use a term from the literature here, temporal landmarks, temporal landmarks. Now they operate like landmarks in physical space. So if I say to you, Don, if you wanna come to my house, go up Wisconsin Avenue and look for a restaurant called Cactus Cantina, all right? That's a landmark near my house. And that'll help you find my way. As you drive to my house, you're probably not paying attention to many other things. It's very forgettable. But that landmark helps you find your way. And we have certain landmarks in time. As you say, Monday is a landmark. The first of a year, the first day of the month, the day after our birthday, the day after a federal holiday. And what these researchers from the University of Pennsylvania found is that those are moments that are where we're more likely to start on better new behavior, going to the gym, eating a little bit better. And the mechanism at work is kind of interesting. We keep in our heads essentially ledgers about ourselves. So a company has a ledger, and when they get to the end of a fiscal year, they close that ledger, start a new one. It's a fresh ledger. And we do that in our heads. So what we do is we say, oh, you know, it's the first day of the year, or a Monday is, oh, you know what? I'm going to relegate my old imperfect self to the past, but I'm going to get a fresh start here on this Monday or this first of the month, and brand new me is going to be different and do some cool things. Is that a positive thing? I think it is. I mean, It's um, not like we're fooling ourselves. It really is a great way to say, okay, let's cut the losses here and start over and build something new. I think that it is. And if you look at this research, again, what it shows is that people are on these kinds of fresh start days they're more likely to start doing things that are good for them. Again, some of this research had to do pretty interesting with gym attendance. That's when we're more likely to go to the gym, which is generally a good thing for us. The bigger point here to your initial question is that we tend to think of timing as an art, all right, as something, oh, it's a little bit loose, it's a little bit haphazard. We make these decisions based on intuition and guesswork. And what I've discovered is that timing is really a science. There is, and what I just mentioned is one example of it, there's this rich body of research that allows us to make 
systematically smarter, shrewder timing decisions based on the evidence. And it turns out that while we obsess often over, especially entrepreneurs, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Who am I going to do it with? It turns out these questions of when we're going to do things actually plays a big role in our likelihood of succeeding. You're making all the sense in the world, because if you think about it, I mean, for centuries, farmers plan their crops around timing. And if your timing is off, you're going to starve. But what you're saying is that actually parallels in the business world and the personal advancement world. Is that what you're saying? That's a great point. I mean, and again, the reason that farmers had to have their timing right is because they were affected by physical forces. But you're absolutely right. In this research that's out there, I mean, a lot of it is in social psychology and economics, but some of it is in the hard sciences, biology, for instance. So one of the things that you see, you know, all your listeners have heard of circadian rhythms, and it turns out that circadian rhythms are one factor in shaping what amounts to a hidden pattern of the day. That is, all times of day are not created equal for doing our work. There is this regular predictable pattern of the day And one of the challenges for being more productive, more creative, is to match what you're doing to the proper time of day. That can make a huge difference in people's productivity and their creativity. Well, talk to me about that, because you actually talk about, you know, beginnings, endings, and in-betweens, but you also unpack the microcosm of a day. You know, I'm a big believer, I'm not super great at it, but I am a big believer about 5.30 a.m. I need to be stirring because I get more done before 9 a.m. than probably the rest of the day. Is there a scientific reason for that? There could be, very easily. So let me unpack this. So there are sort of three elements in figuring out the proper mix of the day. One of them is what's called somebody's chronotype, which is basically, are you a morning person or an evening person? And there's some very simple ways to measure that. But what you see out there in the distribution of these kinds of types is that about 14% of people are, and it sounds like you are one, pretty strong morning people, larks. You got about 20% of people who are pretty strong evening people. That is, they go to sleep a little later, they wake up a little bit later. All of France. Yeah. They reach their, <laughs> and teenagers, they and reach teenagers. their you know, highest energy levels later in the day. And then a lot of us, people like me, are kind of in the middle. It sounds like you're a morning person. Typically, your day will follow this particular pattern, a peak, a trough, a rebound. And all of our days are divided into those three stages. But for you as a morning person, it's that order. The peak's going to come early. The peak is going to come early. It's going to be in the morning. And that's the time when you and most people are better off doing what we can think of as analytic tasks, writing that report, analyzing that financial statement. Now, the next stage is the trough. That's the early to mid-afternoon. That's not good for very much for anybody. And so that's a better time to do your administrative things, answer emails, fill out your TPS reports. And then the third stage is what's called the rebound, where your mood and your performance goes back up. What's interesting is that that period, we tend to be better at more creative kinds of tasks, less of the kind of lockdown, heads down tasks, but more of the creative kinds of tasks. I feel that as you say it. I really do. I feel that. I mean, I feel like before 9 a.m., I'm going to get a lot done. But if I wake up a little later, before 11 a.m., I'm going to get most of my work done. Right after I eat lunch, there's a two to three hour period of like, I really don't want to be doing this. I really want to be going for a walk. That's when I walk the dogs or whatever. 
And then I start thinking creatively later in the day. That's really crazy. That's really true. What's interesting about that is that and these are relatively predictable rhythms and we can unpack it just a little bit. So when we're in our peak period, again, for people like you and me, it's the mornings. For you know, night owls, it's much later in the day. We tend to be very vigilant. That's one of the key words there is vigilant. We can keep out distractions. Later in the day, even though we're you know, alert again, we're alert, but not as vigilant. And the interesting thing here is that when you're doing the lockdown, heads down work, you want to be vigilant. You don't want any distractions. When you're doing creative stuff, you actually want to be a little looser. If you're doing brainstorming, you don't want to be so vigilant and reject every idea that comes in. The key here is what social psychologists call the synchrony effect, which is to match up, like, what's your type? Are you an owl, a lark in between? What's your task? Is it analytic work? administrative work or creative work? And what's your time? Is it early in the day, middle of the day, or late in the day? And it's not like this is going to guarantee you're going to become some kind of superstar. But what the research shows is that time of day explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on these kinds of cognitive tasks. So it, it doesn't mean timing is everything, as people like to say. But it does mean it's a big thing. Timing's a lot. Yeah, exactly. We can eke out more productivity, more creativity if we begin to restructure our schedule to the extent we're able to do that around some of this science. So for somebody like me, it would be, you know, I have this writing shed behind my house. I think if I remember correctly, you have one too. Is that right? You have like a building. I do. I'm talking to you from that (laughs) shed. That's awesome. From like 7 to 11, I need to be in the writing shed and I need to not probably be looking at email, and I definitely need nobody to schedule a call. From 11 to 2, there might be some calls or meetings or lunch meetings or let's go for a walk together and talk about something. And then maybe later in the day, brainstorming, you know, brainstorming with a team or working on another book or doing some research or something like that. I felt that intuitively, but I've never been able to put parameters on it in order to actually structure my time that way as a discipline. I mean, that's very, very helpful. What's great is that you're doing it. I think the downside for some people is that they're not doing it, or even worse, they can't do it. So imagine you were an employee rather than the captain of your own ship, same you with this period in the morning, and every single stupid meeting was scheduled in the morning. And so you're squandering your peak period. Then you're forced to do analytic work during the time of day where that's not optimal for you. Well, that begs an obvious question. If I'm an employer and I've got a thousand people at my factory or whatever, how do I incorporate some of this in order to increase productivity and creativity and bottom line revenue? Have you gotten that far? There have been some instances of that. There's a fellow named uh, Till Ronenberg, a German scholar. He's what's called a chronobiologist, that he has devoted his life to studying these daily rhythms. And what he did is, you mentioned a factory, he's actually done some experiments at an auto plant and a steel factory in which he rearranged people's work schedules to match their chronotypes, that is, whether they're larks, owls, or et cetera. And you know, not surprisingly, he found greater productivity, reduced stress, higher job satisfaction. So you know, it's not always possible, but I think there's a strong argument for bosses taking this into account. And it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is that for whatever reason, this question of when, we don't think of it as a serious question in the way we think of how. How are we going to do this? 
What are we going to do? Who are we going to do it with? And when, the question of when is sitting over there at the kids' table as a kind of a secondary issue. And it's not. It's not more important than who or what, but it's as important. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Daniel Pink in just a moment. If you've been listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast for a while, you're probably wondering what's next. You've probably sat around thinking, you know, I've got to bring my marketing into this next evolution. I've got to clean up the clutter and see a better response from customers. If you want to get started for free, just go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. You can either spell it out or use the number. doesn't matter. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. I will give you three five-minute videos that if you just execute what I say in those videos, you will definitely see results. It is the best place to start. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. All right, I want to move on from a microcosm of a day to greater themes in how time is spent and how time works and how we dance with it. You echo something that we study a lot here at StoryBrand. We study story, and we help people filter their message through story. And you've got beginnings, middles, and ends. Beginnings, midpoints, and endings. And I'm really curious about what you're talking about and how we start something, how we navigate the middle, and why in the end you say we seek meaning. I'm just curious about this. Well, I mean, I think that you know a lot of your work has, especially on the endings part, a lot of your work is very consonant with this. So let me talk about endings here for a second. So the research shows that endings have some interesting effects on our behavior. So one of them is that endings can energize us. So a pretty good example of that is there's some research from Adam Alter at NYU and Hal Hirschfield at UCLA about first-time marathoners. So at what age are people most likely to run their first marathon? What is the most common age at which people are most likely to run their first marathon? And the answer is age 29. Now, superficially, that seems, okay, that's kind of weird. 29, what? But it turns out that 29-year-olds are twice as likely to run a first-time marathon as 28-year-olds, twice as likely as (laughs) 30-year-olds. That's unbelievable. That's kind of interesting, but it gets a little bit more mysterious here. Another common age at which people run the first marathon, 39. Another common age? See if you can guess. Ah, I get it. 49. 49. It's a transition here. You're evaluating life. 49-year-olds are three times as likely to run a marathon for the first time as 50-year-olds. So what it is, is that when people start reaching the end of something, their behavior changes. And in many cases, it energizes them to do something. They say, even something as arbitrary as a life decade. Oh my gosh, it's coming to an end. I better get going. So that's one of the effects of endings. But I think that the connection between your work on stories and narrative and story brand goes with something else here, which is this. So there's some other research that's really changed the way I do things. So you got people who go with their spouse or in parent-teacher conferences or in employee reviews, and they say, I've got some good news and some bad news. And the question is, which do you give first? I always gave the good news first because it's uncomfortable giving bad news. I like to ease into the painful stuff. You know, I want to sort of cushion the pain a little bit. And that's wrong. What the research shows is that four out of five people want the bad news first and then the good news. And again, I feel like with you, I'm already preaching to the saved. You know, given a choice, human beings prefer endings that elevate. They prefer rising sequences to declining sequences. So in our interactions with others, 
obviously we have to be honest, but when we have a mixed message, we're always better off leading with a negative and ending with a positive. This is innate preference for sequences that go up rather than decline, that things that you know advance and accelerate rather than deteriorate. Also on endings, if you think about customer transactions, there's a huge amount of research showing that what happens at the end of anything, an encounter, an experience, a vacation, a life, that the ending disproportionately affects how we remember it. And you can see this very clearly in something like Yelp reviews for restaurants, where if you go into Yelp reviews for restaurants, a disproportionate number of them will be writing about what happened at the end of the meal. Oh, we got a free dessert we didn't expect. I love this place. Oh, they messed up the check and they were jerks about it. Oh my God, I don't have hard research on this. I have anecdotal research. The number of places where you get a good Yelp review if the customer leaves her keys and someone from the restaurant runs after them. Like that's a way to get a five-star rating on any Yelp review, you know, and it happened at the end. And so when we think about even our lives as beginning, middles, and ends, when we think about transactions as beginnings, middles, and ends, those ends have a disproportionate weight on how they affect our behavior, how they affect our memory. And if we're intentional about it as entrepreneurs, as leaders, we can actually significantly improve a lot of those experiences. Yeah, I hired a guy to analyze one of my talks. You know, I gave a talk and they video recorded it. And one of the things he said was, Don, the first thing out of your mouth is critical. And the only thing that's more important is the last thing out of your mouth. You can't say any questions. And then somebody says, what's your favorite book? And I say, well, I love Daniel Pink's book, When. And then I walk off the stage. Well, I mean, that's nice for you. But for my talk, I've got to leave with yeah. reiterating yeah. my thing again so that that's the thing that's echoing. And then I can think of another application. We do workshops. And typically, when the workshop ends, there's some flights, you know, some customers that need to leave a little bit early. And it just sort of fizzles to an ending. And I'm thinking, oh, no, no, no. You've got to gather everybody up at some early enough hour that we actually close this thing on a positive note and give it some structure at the end. Would you say I'm on to something when I need to start? And even a sales call, if I oh, buy somebody lunch, yeah. I need to stop and end this sales visit with something a little more formal. Am I on to it? Totally. Wow. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. the way that I write about this in the book, it's one of the effects that endings have is that endings help us encode. And what I mean by encode is they help us evaluate experiences and remember them. And so you end a sales call on a positive note on something unique, something special, what's going to happen? They're going to evaluate the entire experience based on that end. And that's how they're going to remember it. I think the interesting thing about it is that at least when I look at my own behavior before I dove into this giant body of research is that I was kind of walking blindly through my own work and life. And now I realize like, oh, okay, you got to be more intentional about these kinds of things. There are all these things that we can do to turn the dial just a little bit to work a little smarter, live a little better. Well, let me ask you, how has this changed your life? I mean, I'm curious, two fronts. How has it changed the way you structure a day? Because you and I probably have a similar day. You do consulting, you do writing. And then how has it changed actually the way you interact with people, a sales call, a speech? a family vacation, you know, whatever. First of all, the day. How has this changed how you spend your day? So I, sort of like your story, I had always tried to do a lot of my writing in the morning. Yeah. And now I even more strongly devoted to doing that because I know that pattern. The idea of doing more of the creative stuff in the upswing in the late afternoon was new to me. And so I've actually tried to push certain kinds of things in that area as well. 
The big thing, though, for me at the daily level is something that you actually mentioned, which is this, breaks. I got a whole chapter on breaks, and the science of breaks is powerful. We have really underestimated how important breaks are. And so one of the most useful things I've done is after looking at this research on breaks and their ability to boost our productivity, enhance our creativity, elevate our mood, reduce stress, is when I think about what to do during the day, I write down, you know, what do I have to do that day? I now make a break list. I always write down two breaks that I'm going to take to ensure that I take it. And I try to treat them with the same sanctity with which I treat meetings. So if I have a meeting at three o'clock, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to blow this off and not go. It's like, okay, it's a three o'clock. I got a meeting. I got to go. I try to think of my breaks that way too. I mean, again, I think you're on the right track in a lot of areas here. We know a lot about what kinds of breaks we should take. And among the things that we know is that you're better off going outside rather than inside. That being in nature ends up having this incredibly powerful role in restoring, replenishing us. It's really kind of remarkable. Movement is better than stationary. So walking the dog is fantastic. This is really important. Fully detached is better than semi-detached. So walking your dog while you're looking at your smartphone, probably not a good idea. These semi-detached breaks don't really replenish us. And one of the things that's at least interesting to me as someone who is more of an introvert than an extrovert is social beats solo, that breaks with other people end up being fairly restorative. Yeah, I know. it's uh, Even for an introvert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's challenging. (laughs) I'm always trying to go for a walk by myself. Yeah, I know, I know. It's challenging for an introvert, so I still take a lot of breaks by myself. You talk about the mood dipping during the afternoon, that every day has this kind of story cycle. Things get off to a bang. You have the long act to midpoint, you know, something happens in the middle, and then everything is truncated at the end. It's almost like, in fact, in many stories, everything that they've tried to fight for the entire hour and a half falls apart at the end, is taken away, and then ultimately given back to them a few seconds later. It's almost like a short story at the end. But there's that middle part that most of us spend our hours. How can we navigate the slight downturn in mood, the slight downturn in productivity? Is taking breaks one of those tips? Those are the times you should schedule a break and get recharged to come back stronger? Absolutely. Taking breaks is enormously important there. There's all kinds of good evidence of that. So one of the things that you see in the afternoons is a rather chilling, higher incidence of problems in healthcare. So Hmm. like if you're having a procedure or surgery, you're four times more likely to have a problem with anesthesia at three o'clock in the afternoon as you are at nine in the morning. If you look at uh, incidents of hand washing in hospitals, it goes dramatically down in the afternoon. And there's even research out of Denmark showing that elementary school kids taking standardized tests, the kids who take the test in the afternoon score lower than the kids who take the test in the morning. But the antidote for this is exactly what you're saying, which is that breaks can play a huge role. So there's a whole protocol now in hospitals of timeouts and breaks to prevent medical errors. That the hand-washing problem in that hospital study wasn't alleviated, but it was improved when the nurses could take more regular breaks. The dip in the test scores in Denmark for the kids who took the test in the afternoon, that was eliminated by giving the kids a 20 to 30 minute break ahead of time. So these breaks are a big deal and it changed my view of them. And the way I see it right now is that we often think of breaks as a deviation from performance, but they're actually part of performance. We think of breaks as 
okay, it's a concession I have to make. It's a concession that detracts from my professionalism, but in fact, it's actually part of your professionalism. Like being a professional means taking breaks. That's what pros do. Years ago, I had my life plan done. I spent a couple days with a guy and he made me list the activities that recharged me. So walking the dog, this is going to sound strange, but lawn work actually recharges me if I can get my hands dirty. Because, you know, we think with our brains so much, I just need to get my hands dirty. And then oddly enough, going to movies, and I usually go to movies kind of to study them and enjoy them at the same time. Those three things, and he made me actually define them. Those are the three. And then actually put them into my schedule. He said, you're going to have to schedule this many of these It relieved so much of my guilt because as a type A driven guy, you feel guilty when you ever take a break. And that completely changed everything for me. All right, I want to close with one final thought. This is from page 158 of your book. Closings, conclusions, and culminations reveal something essential about the human condition. In the end, we seek meaning. Now, we talked about that a little bit at 29, 39, and 49. I think part of the desire to finish a marathon is to experience a more meaningful life, at least existentially. This may be a left field question, Daniel. You know, we could get into Viktor Frankl, logotherapy, and all that kind of stuff. But in your life, where have you found meaning? You find when seasons come to an end, or when a day comes to an end, or when a year comes to an end, or a decade, you tend to go back to these things. Can you give us some tips, at least maybe anecdotally, on where to find a deeper sense of meaning? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a very complex It's question. very subjective, yeah. Yeah, you know, and also, you know, it's like those car commercials, like your mileage will vary. But for me... I do think about the, as a writer, I think about the end of big projects and how you go from something that's just an idea in your head to something that is literally a physical artifact, this thing with pages in it that goes out into the world and that infiltrates other people's lives. That is literally this thing that was just a kind of a hazy notion in my head is now sitting in people's houses, you know, on their shelves. And so I find meaning in that way about saying, wait a second, this thing, it might not be the most monumental thing on the planet, but this thing wouldn't exist were it not for my work making this effort. And maybe in some small way, it has an effect on people's lives. And so this is going to sound crazily existential, but I've always thought that when I am long gone, you know, every U.S. book goes into the Library of Congress. When I'm long gone, maybe my great-great-grandchild will be in the Library of Congress and she'll be nosing around and find like one of my books and say, wait a second, that guy was my great-great-grandfather and he did this? That's pretty cool. Like, you know, and so I'm still there in some sense. So that to me is how I deal with the existential challenge of being a live human being. In a sense, what you're seeking, what you're actually accomplishing is transcendence, living beyond your own ability to live. And I think it's fantastic. Well, I think you've accomplished a great deal of that in terms of transcendence. And I think by the time your great, great grandchildren are looking for your books, I have a feeling, Daniel, they're still going to be on the shelf. But maybe well, they have to be in the library because they keep everything. I mean, they'll probably be out of print if there even is print, and they'll probably be long forgotten. But I just have a vision of her going in the archive somewhere. Let's say her last name is Pink also. And, you know, you're all curious about, well, you have a much more common last name. So there are lots of Millers. There aren't that many Pinks. And so she's looking around in the shelves or in a database. You say, like, wait a second. That guy has my name. Wait a second. I think I'm related to that guy. And he did this thing. And somehow at that moment, however many generations later, 
a little piece of me is still around. I personally want to thank you. You've not only helped me in incredibly practical ways build my business and structure my time and think about life differently, but you've always anchored your work to a real sense of meaning and what matters in life rather than just what's on the common scoreboard, which in my opinion is inconclusive in terms of uh, how we should actually measure our lives. And I'm always grateful that you anchor us back to that. Daniel, a wonderful conversation. Thank you for spending time with us. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks for having me. JJ, next week we have somebody equally as smart as Daniel Pink. Yeah? It's another Dan. <laughs> Dan. Dan Heath. Oh, yeah. Chip and Dan Heath. Yeah. You know, they wrote Made to Stick, and their new book is called The Power of Moments. Nice. And I'm fascinated by that as well. Yeah. We're giving you tangible stuff you can use to grow your business yeah. here In and be more productive. And moments. Yeah. He talks about, in fact, we just had dinner with a couple the other night. We're leaving dinner, and because of this interview, I ended dinner differently. We were walking out of the restaurant, and we were about to walk away, and I said, hey, one second. Grabbed the gentleman kind of by the arm a little bit and said, hey, you know, we don't get together with couples who are new friends very often, but this was really one of the more enjoyable conversations I've had in a long time. I want to thank you for sacrificing the time. Merry Christmas. You took a moment. It wasn't just the moment. It was how to end the night. Ooh. Because there's a time to do that. Yeah. And the last thing you say rings through their ears, and that's almost all they remember. Ooh. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And so think about that as it relates to sales calls. Yeah. Or even good night to your spouse or good night to your kids. Yeah. The interview is going to get into it. We're really good at filling the potholes of negative moments. Yeah. We're great at taking away the negative things. What we don't think about are creating these like mountaintop high kind of experiences that they will always remember. Yeah. And he says, you got to do it. Oh, I love there's it. money there. That's going to be fun. There's money there. There's opportunity there. There's impact there. Creating moments and really when and how to do it. That's the conversation next week. Here's a little clip of my conversation with Dan Heath. Recognition is just a, a kind of universal secret sauce for creating powerful moments. And yet it's vastly underutilized. There's this great study that shows if you ask managers, do you frequently recognize your direct reports for the work they've done and honor them for that work? 80% of the managers say, yeah, yeah, I do that. And then if you ask their direct reports, do your managers frequently recognize you for the work you've done? 20% of them say yes. So we call that the recognition gap. And so if there was one thing that probably the simplest, the low hanging fruit from the whole book, at least when it comes to management, especially more recognition is the answer it is not that difficult. It's, it's free. It's easy. It's quick. It makes you feel good. It makes the person praise feel even better. And yet the mystery is, it so rarely happens. Be sure to tune in next week to hear the entire conversation. If you haven't subscribed to the Building a Story Brand podcast, you've got to do it. Listen, my new book, Building a Story Brand, is out. And you're saying to yourself, why should I buy that book? And here's why. If you don't, your competitors are going to beat you in the marketplace. And here's why. They're going to communicate more clearly than you do. We were just with a company not very long ago, last week, less than a week ago, and they said, hey, we got you in the room. Would you look at our website? And I looked at their website, and it said something to the effect of there's only so many hours in a day. If you go to a website and the big text says there's only so many hours in a day, JJ, what kind of company would that be? Time management. Yeah, time management. They're going to teach you to make the most of your time. Yeah. Guess what they did? They are a personal trainer. JJ, that's not what they did. You know what they did? What? 
through them, you can hire a virtual assistant. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they did say that in the small text, but because they said there's only so many hours in a day, it misleads everybody who's looking at their website. Now, I understand how that conversation went. They're all sitting around saying, hey, what do people really get from a virtual assistant? Well, they get more time. We should say there's only so many hours in a day. Well, you just confused everybody. Yeah. If you're confusing people, you're losing. So we help them fix that. The company's called Belay. They're at belaysolutions.com. See if yeah. they change the, <laughs> see if they see change change it the website Because they're amazing. The assistance they provide is pretty incredible. They are. And they do. I hired one of their assistants, yeah. and they do give me way more hours of the day. Yeah. But that's not what you say on the website. <laughs> yeah. If you think your website is confusing like that, I want you to know it's costing you money. It's costing you a lot of money. If you're a sub $1 million company and you can't get past the $1 million mark, and you're wondering why you can't grow, it might be that your product is great. It might be that your people are great. It might be that your customer service is great. It might be that you're just not explaining anything in such a way that anybody can immediately understand why they need it. That is the problem my book, Building a Story Brand, solves. Read the book. It'll take you about three hours to read it, and you will start making changes to the way that you talk about what you do, what you offer the world. The book, Building a Story Brand, again, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books. JJ, 2018 is off to a great start. I know. I'm so excited. Daniel Pink, then Dan Heath. I know. A lot of Dans. Dan's the mans. (laughs) Dan with the plan. Dan with the plan. All right, we should stop there. Music from this episode (laughs) is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.